Hey everyone, you are listening to another episode of the Divergent Conversations podcast. Megan and I are really thankful for all of you listening, subscribing, downloading, and sharing in 2023. We are re-releasing some of our favorite episodes because we both need a break. And we want you to be able to get all of the information that you can out of these episodes. Six of our favorites for sure. We think that if you haven't listened already, they're a great introduction to the podcast. If you have already, hopefully there's some takeaways that you come away with this time that you didn't the first time around. We will be back in six weeks for another round of episodes and seasons. We have some great interviews lined up. We've had some incredible people scheduled already, including Dana Abraham, Tiffany Hammond, and so many more people. So really appreciate everyone listening. Make sure to like, download, subscribe, and share on every single Friday on all major platforms and YouTube. Hey, everyone. You are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. Hey, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the Divergent Conversations Podcast. I'm your co-host, Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And today... We are going to talk about our diagnosis stories, um, our diagnosis stories and how we ended up, you know, desiring to go get evaluated and seen to figure out if we were autistic ADHD folks and just get some grasp of what was going on in our lives. Figured it's a good topic to talk about early on in this podcast journey because I think it helps frame things for everybody too. And Megan, I don't know if maybe you want to start us off and kind of take it away with the buildup of what led you to decide that you wanted to seek out a formal diagnosis and what was going on prior to that, that kind of made you start thinking, this is something I want to. Yeah. It's interesting because I think you and I have different diagnoses journeys in the sense that when I've heard you talk about it, there was an element of surprise to it. I, I think my experience might be more common among particularly women and genderqueer people of, I was like, I had already self-diagnosed and I was just like looking for that extra validation, um, which honestly I actually wouldn't have done if I wasn't publicly talking about being autistic. And my biggest fear, my biggest, one of, not my biggest fear, I don't like a hyperbole, hyper words pronunciation warning hyperbole actually i don't think i could say that word even if it was afternoon hyperbole 
How do you say? <laughs> now you're going to, I'm going to be questioning how this comes up. Hyperbole. <laughs> I like we know where we're going with that. <laughs> that word that I cannot pronounce. Oh. oh my goodness. My, my language use is just like people in my life have all, this has been one of my Megan Anna quirks. It's like the way I make up words, the way I pronounce words, I add syllables to words. So whatever that word is. Wow. That was a tangent. So one of my fears has been that psychologists or other people in the mental health field would look at me and be like, she's not autistic, blah, 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 blah. So that, that was a lot of the motivation for seeking a formal diagnosis was if, um, if I was going to be in the space advocating as an autistic person, um, I, I thought it was good to do due diligence around that. So my story is probably more about my self-diagnosis actually, which really started with my child, um, which again is pretty common story for the lost generation of autistic women and gender queer people. And my kids diagnosis was also a bit of a surprise. Um, even though it's so interesting because my training as a psychologist in some ways made it easier to see my child and in other ways made it harder because probably for the, a couple years leading up to their diagnosis, there'd be a time where, cause they'd already been diagnosed with ADHD. I'd been like, this feels different than ADHD. And I'd maybe Google autism and then my husband and I would talk about it and we'd be, we'd come up with some reason why it wouldn't make sense. Um, but then we had an experience. I'm noticing I'm struggling to talk about it. Um, my child has given me permission to share their story, but as they're getting older, um, you know, their feelings on that might change. So I'm trying to be descriptive while also being big. Um, but there, there was an experience that looking back, was very much them interpreting something literally and having a really big reaction, which we'd been coding as dramatic and all the things autistic girls get coded as. Um, and we went on a walk after the kind of meltdown. And I was like, hey, did you actually believe what dad had said in that moment? It was very, okay, it's not gonna work to be super vague about this. So I'll tell the descriptors of the literal thing. We're a vegetarian family. We have been for years. Um, and my child was asking, is there meat in this? We had nachos, um, one night and there's a lot of kind of checking behavior. And so, um, and my husband said jokingly, yes, there's meat, which it's a question that happens pretty much anytime we have any sort of fake, fake meat. Um, and, and that's what led to the big reaction. And based on context cues, based on knowing our family culture, like it would not be me. <laughs> um, so that was what they had taken literally and had a big reaction to. And then on our walk um, is when, and this is a very autistic thing. I think a lot of parents like think through, try to figure out their kid's diagnosis before just bringing it up to their kid. But I've always been very honest and open with my kids. Um, they were also 10, 11 at this time. Um, but I was like, hey, what if it's something like autism and not ADHD? And their response was really incredible around it. was like, you know, I'd still be me. We would just like understand me differently or understand me better. It wouldn't change who I am. So that started a rabbit trail of learning about autistic girls 
Um, and we decided that day, like we went on a TikTok binge actually, and we're learning all of these things about autistic girls and her whole story made sense. My whole experience of parenting her made sense. I had, I was very confused by parenting, um, this child and so many things clicked into place, which of course ignited my special interest energy. And that then led to hours and hours of research around autism and girls and then autism and women. And then learning that typically when a child's autistic, one of the parents is on the at least broader autistic phenotype, however we feel about that term. Um, and at first I was like scouring my husband's tree because he's very introverted um, and like systems. So at one hand that made sense, but he understands social cues in a way I, I don't. Um, so then I was looking at my family tree and I was like, oh, I see it. And I, I see it in me. It was really cool. I have access to a ton of psychological data on me because in my training, I did an IQ test. I did like pretty much any personality test or assessment I would give to a client I've given to myself. So I had a ton of data. So I was doing the research. I was doing the like AQ and the screeners you can do online. But then I was looking through all of my psychological data, even things like when I did my IQ test, my processing speed and working memory were so low compared to like my verbal intelligence and my other forms of intelligence, which is really classic of a autistic ADHD profile. So um, that's kind of my story was it started with my kids discovery, which led to special interest, which all of a sudden in my life felt like it clicked into place. And within a week of doing the research, I just knew, I knew I was autistic. I remember I have a very distinct memory of sitting across from my husband and telling him, I feel at peace in my body for the very first time in my life. And not because my body is suddenly magically an easy place to occupy. It's not, but I wasn't at war with it anymore. I wasn't like the best way to describe it is I was bracing for impact constantly. And all of a sudden I realized I was doing that. I realized I'd been doing that for 37 years and it just, I, I felt aligned. I felt aligned for the first time. Thank you so much for sharing that and, and your daughter's story as well. And it sounds like once that realization came to place between the two of you, it was almost as if everything started to align and make sense. And I, I want to circle back to a couple of things that you said, because I think it's important for people who are listening. So one, the moment where your husband was joking about like, yeah, there's meat in this and that mm -hmm. joke just completely being taken literally and the inability to to parse that out or, or differentiate between that is so common, right? And gets often missed and leads to that meltdown or that frustration and that uh, shutdown in general. And then you mentioned something prolific that your daughter said at how old? 11, 10? Uh, 10 at the time. Yeah. I mean, she's always been very like 10 going on 30, you know, she's always been at two, like a little philosopher. <laughs> I love that she was like, yeah, I'm still going to be me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just understand me in a different way. And I think that's really <laughs> profound one and just beautifully. Yeah. yeah. I, that moment has stuck with me for so long. Cause I think I was more afraid of the diagnosis than she was. 
Um, I was going to ask you about, yeah. you said that you were trying to rule out autism, right? Like ADHD's here, but then uh -huh. we're, my husband and I are like looking at autistic traits and then mm -hmm. saying, convincing ourselves like, no, it can't be that. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I mean, I think there certainly could have been some ableism in that. I think it was more like she, she's very, um, like she, especially when she was younger, would love to talk with people and, and very like seeking out of people. And, um, and, and now we know this, like autistic girls can be hyperverbal. She definitely was. Um, and so, and it was more because of our stereotypes of autism that we were like, yeah, pieces of this fit, but then that, and then my husband also, he at the time was in education and this has been an interesting conversation with him around diagnosis, the kids that get identified in education systems, um, typically are kids who also have pretty significant learning disabilities with the autism, which our daughter does not. So she presents differently than also like the kids that he was used to like associating with autism, which again, we, we know this, right. When we look at highly intelligent and I apologize. This research has been reported in the gender binary. So I'm sticking like, so I'm reporting it in the gender binary. Um, but when we look at highly intelligent girls to boys, the diagnosis is nine to one, meaning nine, what used to be considered Asperger's nine boys to every one girl identified. Obviously we know that's not the true ratio. That's the ratio being identified, which means these smart autistic girls we just don't understand. We don't understand how it presents, what it looks like. Um, so it's more that I think that made it hard to, to recognize was the gender bias, I think. Yeah. Like she's not fitting into this mold that mm -hmm. is specifically constructed and this doesn't make, this isn't adding up to us. And it's really interesting how you, you were able to, to kind of look through different lenses, both as a parent, both as a psychologist, um, to try to kind of parse that apart and then to be able to do your own research on yourself and have that data mm -hmm. is really useful. Something that people mm -hmm. don't have access to a lot of the time. And, um, so that's really, it's fascinating to hear this story and then to have that moment for you. And I think that's really beautiful just as a friend and colleague of yours to hear you say like, that was the first time I felt relief in my body. Mm -hmm. And I like that you named, it doesn't mean it's made it any easier of an experience mm -hmm. because I get exactly what you mean. Hmm. And, but it's just that realization, right? Of like that mental fatigue, the, the almost gymnastics that we go through on an interaction by interaction mm -hmm. basis that we're bracing for. And yeah. we don't know that we're doing it until we have some acknowledgement or realization mm -hmm. take place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like it was, a, it was a really interesting experiment around that time. So I've always walked fast. It, when I was younger, it would be referred to as the McMinn walk because, because that was my last name before. And I've always been a fast walker. Like people have had a hard time keeping up with me, which is funny. I'm five, two, I'm short, but I'm just, and, um, it was a few days like after my, my discovery and I was walking to get mail and you know, there's kids playing, there's dogs, there's cars. And, and this was actually relatively quiet neighborhood, but for me, it's a lot. And I just noticed how like I was tense, my shoulders were tense and I was like walking as fast as I could to get mail. And it's very, it's like holding my breath 
while I'm out in the world. And I did this thing. I was like, what if I just relax, walk slow and, and notice, like notice the sensory stuff because I'd been, for me, I had become very disassociated from my body. And so it was a really interesting experience of letting myself notice the dog barking, letting myself notice my body was irritated by it and letting it kind of flow through me. And so I began actually noticing my sensory sensitivities more, but it also, because I I wasn't like this rigid icicle that could just be, you know, if you think about like rigid icicles, they break off when you apply tension because I was able to melt into it a little bit more. I found more flexibility in how I was experiencing my sensory world. It was a really, it's a, it's a hard thing to put into words, but it was a really interesting experience. Everything about you is so meta. I love that you're like <laughs> breaking this down in this way while this is happening. Um, I, I, the sensory stuff is, is a whole, I think an episode in itself for sure. And I like your mindfulness approach to a lot of this that we talked about last week too. For our listeners, this could be helpful. Just Megan's approach in general and how she's going through the day and kind of noticing how certain sensations are impacting her. Um, but yeah, this is this is really interesting. And I think, you know, just recognizing that the research is so skewed and obviously we're just, we're missing the mark a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, on people who don't look like me. Mm-hmm. And even then, both of us being late adult diagnosis. I well, mean. I was going to say, you do look like you and you were late diagnosed. So yeah, can you, yeah. Just, I want to hear more. I know I've heard parts of your story, but I don't think I've heard it as a cohesive narrative. Um, I'm trying to think of if any part of my life feels like a cohesive narrative. <laughs> but I know as soon as I said that, it's like, ooh, that's a lot of pressure. I definitely did not do a cohesive narrative. <laughs> I think you did. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm 36 now, and I was diagnosed last year. Was it last year? Maybe it was two years ago. Time, time. Uh, is, what is time? What is time right now? Or in general, I think it was two years ago, and I had been diagnosed ADHD um, several years beforehand by someone, and I had gone in to get testing because I was like, I was having these experiences that I think often overlap with complex PTSD of mm-hmm. like really low self-worth, low self-esteem, mm-hmm. inability to feel like you can be loved or receive love and just a lot of interpersonal shit going on that you yep. can certainly look back at attachment wounding for sure and childhood trauma. But um, I just remember a psychiatrist that I worked with at the hospitals um, setting that I was working at at the time as a therapist was like, Oh, I think it's ADHD. Like the constant, like Mm -hmm. I want to be elsewhere and something else can look different and more exciting. Mm -hmm. And we were just having some, some conversation one day and I was like, okay, well, I guess that could make sense. I'll go take a look. I'm trying to really figure this out for myself. I'd been misdiagnosed so many times, which I know we're going to do an episode on misdiagnosis at some point, but you know, misdiagnosed bipolar two, misdiagnosed with OCD, oh, wow. misdiagnosed with GAD or generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of what else is is in that mix. But were these and were these adult diagnoses? Um, yeah, late like in my twenties. So some of them fit the profile to some degree. You know, like yeah, I was going to ask you if they felt like true misdiagnoses or like 
they just weren't capturing the whole picture. I think it was at the time I didn't know any better. I think that I felt like it was accurate, like mm-hmm. bipolar mm-hmm. too. I was like, okay, my mom has bipolar disorder. I have a gambling mm-hmm. addiction. I'm very impulsive. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm having really bad mood instability. Yeah. And then yeah. And you go on these antipsychotics for a oh year or two changes yeah. or they get worse. Um, so it's just like those little things that you don't think about in the moment if mm-hmm. you don't have the understanding or even knowledge to to, to uh, pursue that. Um, so I'm sitting in this psychologist's office going to get testing for ADHD and she's like, I think you're autistic. This is before we even start talking, really. I'm just like sitting on her couch. And in my opinion, you know, even as a mental health professional, I find it very uncomfortable during your first couple of meetings with anybody who's a new person in your life. So, yeah. you know, yet I said, I kind of was like taken back by that. And I said, well, why, <laughs> like, why mm-hmm. are you saying that? Well, you know, your affect is just very, very flat and uh, your emotions are very blunted and, you know, a lot of one word answers. And I'm like, I just met I just you. communicated like, I to you in a really autistic way. Yeah. Like, very right. matter of fact, like, oh, well, because this, this, and this, I think you're autistic. Like, right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, I'm not here for that. Like, I'm here to get testing uh-huh. on ADHD. And I think she probably was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to, she know, backed do out what, what you want to yeah. do. And, uh, you know, get this formal diagnosis of ADHD. It all makes sense. It all clicks. Uh-huh. And for a couple of years, I'm feeling like, okay, I've got a, I've got a good sense of what's going on in my life. And, and, areas that I really need to kind of get some more clarity on and, and work through because it's impacting me. What I started to realize like over the last couple of years was the constant, constant feelings of loneliness and disconnection in mm-hmm. every social interaction that I experienced. Mm-hmm. And that was just mm-hmm. like with people who I know, like logically know, they care about me. They love me. They, they are, they have my genuine best interests at in mind, whatever, even my wife, um, or close friend group and just really feeling like in every social situation, Mm -hmm. I was just really struggling and realizing that that has been my entire existence of Mm -hmm. socializing in a way where, you know, we talked last week about alcohol needing to be involved or Mm -hmm. like just simply feeling so much discomfort, like that crawl out of your skin, discomfort Mm -hmm. of like, I just got to get the fuck out of this situation. And it made feeling connected really challenging. And weirdly enough, this is probably not going to make a lot of sense for a lot of people, but my turning point of figuring this out was being at a conference in Hawaii, a therapist conference in Hawaii a couple of years ago and going to see the Anthony Bourdain movie that had just come out. Cause I've, I'm just, have always been a huge, huge fan and, was watching his experiences in the movie and they were talking about like his close friends and colleagues about like the constant loneliness and disconnection Mm -hmm. and always wanting to be on the go, but always wanting to come back home and feeling that push pull, but never really feeling belonging. And I just remember having lunch with a friend and she was like, I think you should just maybe go get tested and see Mm -hmm. that, see if you're autistic. And I was like, I, I don't know. It's, it was definitely my own ableism coming out, but I was like, no, like that's, that's not a thing here. That that's not what we're going to be. You know, that's not what I want to look at. And I don't think that's true, but I did pursue it and all the, all the testing and all the, um, 
results made sense once I heard it. And mm -hmm. I told you this, like I had this experience of simultaneous, like co-occurring grief and relief. Yeah. And yeah, just was that process of like mm -hmm. relief, right? Like you almost said like the first time you had felt this feeling of relief in your body for sure. Like, okay, this all makes sense. Childhood makes sense. All these interactions yeah. make sense. Like, and then grief of fuck, I don't know <laughs> how to move through life now. And it's permanent. I, it's permanent. And, yeah. and it was framed in the way from the psychologist of like, and you're going to need to constantly have adaptation to be able to huh. get through life because of how challenging life is huh. going to be. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm 34 years old. Like, Life has been fucking challenging. It hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, huh. that was, I didn't have that really profound moment that your your daughter had where it was like, yeah, but I'm still just me. And mm -hmm. other people told me that, like my wife and some close friends were like, but you're, you're still you. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. change anything. And I was like, but I think it changes everything, actually. For me, it changes everything. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And is it when you say it changes everything, were you thinking future? Yeah, I think it was all about the future and seeing everything through this autistic lens now. Mm -hmm. And then I do this thing and I, I don't know if you are you know, guilty of this to some degree too, but starting to make associations of everything about like, is it because I'm autistic? Is this because mm -hmm. is my social yeah. everything? Yeah. And yeah. So it's it's been an interesting journey, but I would say that it has given me permission once I've moved through the acceptance stage of who I am and the identity and the struggles that I experienced, that it has given me permission to just feel more comfortable in who I am too. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure this can, you know, we can have a a, a episode on unmasking and masking at some point in time, but it almost allowed me to start unmasking more because I started to ask for what totally. I needed and state how I was feeling and why I was doing something. Because yeah. you know, we get this societal pressure to show up a certain way, socialize a certain way, communicate Absolutely. a certain way. And instead I was just like, fuck this. I'm not, that's not who I am. And I can't do it anymore because yeah. it feels like that pressure is just building and building and building and it just feels insurmountable at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm having, I'm having associations. I'm not sure it's going to make sense, but this idea of you feeling more comfortable and then grief, I kind of wonder if they're the flip side of the same coin. Um, I, cause I definitely experienced, like I became more aware of my social awkwardness after my diagnosis. I think I always knew I was like intellectual and like, would be kind of overly academic in my conversation with people, but I, and then I could be awkward, but I didn't really, I think I intentionally didn't focus too much on it. But then after my diagnosis, I, I realized how awkward I could be. And like all of a sudden these awkward moments was like, Oh, that's cause I'm autistic. Not cause I'm like some like intellectual academic, like that's a much nicer, you know, narrative. And, and so there's grief with that. And here's the thing that maybe won't totally tie in, but my thought is what if part of the unmasking experience is we're grieving the burial of our masked self in the sense that there's probably some fantasy that the mask that they're work we're working so hard to hold on to is a, a real self 
Cause we it, like Pinocchio wanting to be a real boy, like wanting to be a neurotypical we're, we're burying that when we unmask and there's grief in that. And I think on the other side of that is, is the comfort, but it, but it takes the grief. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day about this, about how part of my freedom socially has come from, I now, not all the time, but 90% of the time I accept I'm awkward. So if I'm public speaking, or even in this podcast, if I have an awkward moment or I can't say a word, um, I embrace that of like, oh, that's my ADHD brain combining things, or that's my, that's my autism. But I had to grieve that I wasn't my mask before I could be comfortable embracing my social awkwardness and other quirks. Yeah, I, I've never thought about it that way, but I think you're spot on. And I wonder if it's that feels really commonplace for adult diagnosed folks, like where you've spent decades of your life trying to act or present a certain way and trying so fucking hard to not be awkward, not be weird, socialize, pick up on cues, mm-hmm. make eye contact, all the things. And then it is that realization of that. That's not really who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the piece of, will I ever be that person yeah. again? Yeah. The part for me that feels comforting is like the answer that I have when I ask myself that is like, I don't think I want to go back yeah. to that. One. Yeah. And this is where um, I think there's a lot of identity and relational shifts that happen when a later in life diagnosed person is diagnosed and starts unmasking because if, if we're bearing an old part of us, a mass part of us, if that's who we've been in our key relationships, like, especially if we're in partnerships and marriages, um, that's going to have a like significant impact of you're like, you're getting to re-know yourself and then your partner and your family's re-getting to know you. Um, this would be interesting. I would be curious about separations and divorces, like the year or two after diagnosis for an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Just because of who someone starts to embrace in terms of their mm-hmm. identity and mm-hmm. whether or not the other partner can, can accept, or if it even feels like the same person. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That would be very interesting. How did your wife, like, how was this journey for the two of you? Yeah, I was going to say that it sounds like both of us are fortunate to have partners where mm-hmm. they were pretty accepting of, yes. of this experience. And that's how my wife was. And mm-hmm. she was one of the, the groups of people in my life who was just like, I don't think she had a word for it. Maybe like, but I remember calling her. I had gotten the results. I was in New York speaking at a conference and visiting family, which, you know, is a thing. And, um, I just remember calling her and being like really upset and really emotional, which was not my baseline. And, um, I just remember her saying like, yeah, I don't think I had a word for this, but I think I knew this about you. Like mm-hmm. this is who you are, like, mm-hmm. this is how you act. This is how you interact. I know what you struggle with, but you know, I think that just goes to say that I've felt comfortable enough around her to be my true self, to be able to unmask pretty regularly. Um, and I think that felt complicated though. Mm-hmm. I think it felt like 
I don't think it felt like dismissal because that's not that's not how it felt. But it was just simply like, yeah, this is just this is just our lives. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but everything feels so much more complicated for me now. Yeah. Uh, and she's listened to other episodes I've done on autism diagnosis and how I experience social interactions and social gatherings. I know it can be upsetting because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she's from the South, large black Southern oh, family. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of family interaction, lots yeah. of gatherings, lots. It's loud. It's, I love them. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my ideal holiday is like, let's get the fuck away from our families and her yes. ideal holiday is like, spend as much time yeah. with them as possible. Um, so it's been great to communicate. This is what I need. And this is what mm-hmm. I can, this is what I can endure mm-hmm. uh, because you have to, I have to, I don't want to generalize. I have to build up these like reserves of energy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for a four hour experience and situations totally. are going to be loud, are going to be chaotic. There's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of stimulation. Like mm-hmm. have to go into it knowing that I am going to leave it depleted and paying yeah. for it for days, if not weeks yeah. at a time. So it's still, it's still a work in progress. And I think it's mm-hmm. still, they're still figuring out, you know, what's how to best make partnership work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my wife is um, undiagnosed ADHD, but she's self-diagnosed herself. And I mm-hmm. would agree with the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also, communication misfires like mishaps where i'm receiving information differently than she's putting it out to me or the communication is just missing because of the way Mm -hmm. we interpret communication and there are often times where she'll say something and i think i hear it and i have to say what did you what Mm -hmm. did you say and she's like see you're not listening again no it's it's just Mm -hmm. i'm not processing it so yeah um, yeah still work in progress but happily able to say that at least I know that there isn't shame or judgment here. And, and that feels really supportive. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? You know, you mentioned you kind mm-hmm. of knew while going through your daughter's journey. Yeah. I mean, w- the first time I brought it up to, to Luke, um, he was like, that doesn't sound right because I'm the one who's always craving like emotional intensity and I'm, Um, I'm the therapist. And then as I was doing more research and like kind of unpacking, like, okay, here's what I found. Here's my thinking. He was like, actually, that makes a lot of sense. We met in college. He's like, you know, I was, I was drawn to how direct you are. He comes from a more like indirect culture and family. And so he's like, yeah, I think I was drawn to how direct you were, but at times I did think it was kind of strange, like how direct you were. Um, But it's also, I think, part of what he found attractive about me back then. And so it was interesting even to review um, our history of what he was drawn to about me, a lot of what he was drawn to about me, like my intellectualism, my direct nature, my, I was very passionate, as you can imagine. Um, At the time, gosh, this could be a whole episode so we, my husband and I both grew up fundamentalist. Neither of us are in that tradition at all anymore. Um, but I channeled a lot of my passion and direct nature toward Jesus, which was a socially acceptable thing to do as a fundamentalist girl. Um, it was the only way to be a direct girl. And, and I would still get in trouble for being too direct, but it was 
all in the name of like this kind of social justice Jesus. Um, and so that was, I think that was part of how he was experiencing my directness. But yeah, so I think for him, it helped answer things. I, I think it's it'd be interesting to ask him. I think there's probably a similar grief and relief of even things like, you know, when he'd come up and touch me, I would, I would shiver physically. And I, I think we were both confused by that of, um, am I rejecting? Like, why am I rejecting his touch? And I think for him to have a narrative of, oh, unexpected touch, it, it's not me that she's rejecting. It's unexpected touch. Like, I think little things like that, and that's not, actually, that's not a little thing. Touch is a big thing in a marriage. Um, were, were really helpful for him. But then again, there's, there's grief of, um, I, I think there are things that he would probably enjoy having in a marriage that we don't have and probably won't ever have like the flirtatious banter, the, um, impromptu touch, like there are things. And if anything, I feel like I've been trying to give him permission of like, you know, you can grieve this too. <laughs> um, because I'm doing my grief around it. Yeah. There's so many layers to this and I, I can relate with the impromptu unexpected touch too. Cause my wife, Aria will say the same thing. Like you shiver when you touch, when I touch you or like, mm -hmm. I think she's somewhat gotten more accepting of that. But like, like you just said, there's still gotta be that grief of like, this is not something that can really be sustainable in a, in our relationship. And mm -hmm. it's not something that I can provide or ever just get comfortable with like that's just not something that can mm -hmm. happen so, yeah it's it's really layered and i'll take it a step further you know with diagnosis stories like family members too when they when you start to talk about it openly and and come out and, and just announce or talk mm -hmm. with people about your diagnosis and your experience or you might even start reflecting on your childhood experiences more often because you're starting yeah. to put the associations together and I've never talked about it with my dad. Like we haven't had a single conversation that's involved or included the word autism whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I know he sees my podcast. I know he sees my stuff. So hmm. never. So he knows, but it's not talked about. Yeah. Which is oh, interesting. Most of everything mm -hmm. in our dynamic, but my mom, on the other hand, who, as a retired therapist was like centering it around her and her parenting. What did I miss? How did I miss this? Like, um, no, I don't think this could be accurate. Um, no, I didn't notice this. And I'm like, I'm not asking you for any of this right now. You know, like I don't, it's not what I need from you is, uh, is how this makes you feel in terms mm -hmm. of your parenting or lack thereof. So it's interesting to see how people, receive information about something that is life-changing mm -hmm. uh, because it is it's just very it's different and it, it it just shows up in different ways and it can show up for their grief or their own frustration or their own ableism or whatever's happening mm -hmm. behind the scenes but really is a complicated, complicated subject. And I can see yeah. why a lot of people don't want to pursue diagnoses too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think complicating it is, you know, autism is so genetic that typically when 
your like disclosing a diagnosis um there's typically implications for some of the people you're communicating that to and so i think that adds another layer of complication as well um because either you seem totally normal to them because the the things you're experiencing they've always experienced but also if there's some like there can be really strong internalized ableism when we're undiagnosed and older um, and gone through our life undiagnosed. And so I think all of that can get stirred up unconsciously and consciously for the family members that are being told this. I mean, yeah, it is self-disclosure and family is really complicated um, really quickly. Yep. Yep. And that association, you know, genetically to say then, there can be so much shame, internalized shame mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. any sort of diagnosis, not just an autism, ADHD diagnosis. But whenever we're talking about any condition, disabling condition especially, people have their own histories and, and just lived experiences with how they feel about certain terminology too. And, mm-hmm. and I know my association, you know, when I got diagnosed, was I used to work in some some group homes for people with um, developmental disabilities, intellectual developmental disabilities in New York when I was in, getting out of college. And my immediate association was like, yeah, but like I don't struggle with any of these things, mm. which is my own ableism showing up at that yeah. time. Yeah. But that was my first association mm-hmm. when hearing like you're, you're autistic. Yeah. And we can have all, and I think we have this on the list, a whole conversation about, how could you be autistic because of A, mm-hmm. B, C, A, and mm-hmm. F, and G? Mm-hmm. And you're too, quote yeah. unquote, high functioning for that label, which mm-hmm. I hate that fucking label too. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, think I've maybe shared this story with you before. Years, so maybe five years before identification, first year in the doctoral program, I was taking the MCMI which is a common personality assessment. And it gives you a printout of future like diagnoses to look into further. And I think there may be two on my printout, autism spectrum disorder. And then I actually can't remember the other one. And I remember the moment of looking at that and being like, like, what the hell? Like, no way. And exactly what you're saying, like a ton of ableist associations came to my mind in that moment of like, there's no way that's me. And Sometimes it's helpful for me to go back and remember that moment because I have done so much deconstruction that I can, I think I can not have as much patience for people who are earlier in their journey of addressing ableism. So being able to point back to be like, oh my gosh, there were there was so much ableism in me um, that was showing up in that moment. It's helpful for me to be able to kind of access empathy for other people who are um, newer to this journey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is a journey that even as a mental health worker and, you know, I, I'm still learning all the time. Hell. Oh yeah. I still have ableism pop up left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just so deeply rooted and conditioned in Mm -hmm. us in society too. And it's doing the work to deconstruct is, is crucial, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that there are not moments where I'm like, Ooh, I need to walk that back. Or like that, that's not 
the phrase I wanted to use there. And I need to really yeah. work, on, you know, my vocabulary and, and wording too. And I think it's just also acknowledging that too, and not mm -hmm. just over it, not just yeah, yeah, kind of putting it or scraping it under the rug, you know? Yeah. But, or even like who's included in the conversations. Like I just did a webinar on alexithymia last week. And as I was reviewing the slides, I was like, I was, I was seeing my bias of, um, I'm, I'm really primarily speaking about autistic people and ADHD people who don't have co-occurring intellectual disabilities and who are speaking, um, partly because the research around alexithymia is geared toward that population, but partly because of my own bias and because that's the world I subjectively know. It's primarily the world I work in. But it was definitely a moment of like, I have, I've, I've got a lot to do, um, to learn and to incorporate because I'm filtering a lot of the research and resources I'm engaging with through this bias. For sure. It's a great point. I think it's, um, definitely worthy of a probably more conversation as we go. And, uh, you're, you're heavy in the research side too, and the clinical side. And I think it's important for us to just continue to, to have these conversations and address them as well. And <sighs> heavy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, um, I don't know if I'm reading you right, but it looks, are you trying to find a natural way to segue to a conclusion, but also we've been talking about heavy stuff. So are you kind of like, Oh fuck, like, Okay, we talk about heavy stuff. Now we have to transition to ending. Is that what's happening for you right now? I told you that if we recorded routinely, that we'd start picking up on each other's like tells even more than we already do. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I'm very hyper aware. You we talked about my internal clock last week about like, hey, we're getting close to time. Like, mm -hmm. we've got stuff that we have to do at, at the next hour. And I'm also thinking, damn, that this is heavy. And I think every single one of these conversations is probably going to feel similarly. Yeah. Uh, and then how do we wrap that up? Yeah. Yeah. That like the energy put in social transitions. I, I once, one of the metaphors I used earlier with my therapist is I feel like I don't have social ligaments, like the things that help you be flexible so much energy when we need to like socially transition. So yeah, like that transition of, okay, we're kind of in a heavy space. Now we have to do our awkward goodbye. Um, that takes a lot of energy. It does. And I'm also, you know, I'm trying to be aware of, of where you're at too energy wise. And I'm like, I don't want to transition if we're not ready to transition. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I like but that. Just get to talk about it instead of like trying and read. It's like, I like that we're having a conversation about what was happening instead of trying to like inter read nonverbals and absolutely. So I'm, I'm grateful for you for, for naming that. And that is where we are going to transition because we're going to have a lot more of these conversations too. And I, I, I think we want to hear from those of you listening about your stories and about your, your diagnosis journey so that we can be there alongside you too. And, and just provide resources as well. And, and I hope this felt supportive and affirmative and, you know, just sharing a little glimpse about who Megan and I are and, and how we've gotten to where we are today. I think it's a really good uh, look into that window for sure. So I appreciate everyone listening and we have, I'm struggling right now. 
we are going to have new episodes coming out every single week of the Divergent Conversations podcast on all major platforms. You can like, download, subscribe, and share. Megan, you want to add anything before we go? Um, nope. <laughs> all right, then. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.